Oh, we have the joy this morning to bring our series through Colossians to a closure. We made it to the final section of the book. It did not take 10 years to get through, but it probably could. I hope you have enjoyed this the study of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. It has some amazing, wonderful truths that teach us about the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, what a life looked, what a life lived for Christ looks like. Trust me, we did not plumb the depths of it. There is so much more that we could spend time going through it, and we will someday at some point. But I hope you've been able to pick up the, the main theme of the book of Colossians as we've walked through it. And that theme is the, and it's an inescapable theme, you can't ignore it, you can't miss it. It is the supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus over everything and in everything. Jesus gets first place. First place in all the cosmos, first place in all the church, and first place in each one of our lives. And Jesus' excellence changes the way we live. It ought to. We think about, we're leading up to chapter 4 here today, what has been said, even chapter 3 up to this point. As Paul set the stage in chapter 1, that hey, Christ is the preeminent one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him everything was made. By the way, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. And now in light of that, what he's done, chapter 2, especially, by the way, his work canceled your record of debt, my record of debt, of sin that stood against us. He nailed that to the cross so that now we can stand forgiven before God Almighty, the Holy One. Not just forgiven, you're free to go. Hey, your sin, your, your guilt, your penalty for breaking the law of God is, is paid for. Not just that, but now in Christ, you can now come to God. You are reconciled, not just forgiven, but reconciled to a right relationship with Him. And all that comes through the work of the preeminent one, Jesus Christ. And because of what He has done... And you're standing before God. He is now working in your life to make you more like Him. And chapter 3 began with, because of that, set your minds on the things that are above. Well, it's above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on Him. Set your mind on heavenly things. Because when Christ, the one who is seated above, when He appears, when He returns, we also will be with Him. We will be with Him in glory. So in light of our, our mind, our perspective being set correctly, now live rightly. Live in a way that shows that Jesus is first place. He is the most important one. How He says I ought to live is how I ought to live. With our minds fixed upon Him, we seek to conform every area of our life to His commands. And every, every area of our life is impacted by Christ's rule. And we saw at the end of chapter 3, not only is that in our personal life, but it is in church life, it is in the church, and it is even in our families. Our places of employment. Christ must be preeminent there too. How? In the way we live. 
So let's, with that in mind, let's read chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. And, and I will admit, we have a lot of text to get through today, and I will do my best to get you out before lunch. <laughs> chapter 4, beginning verse 2, I'm going to be reading from the NASB translation. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up, open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, or Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, you have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. As we land the, the plane in this final chapter of Colossians, we are reminded of the mission of Christ at work in us and through us. We aren't here on earth just to leisurely pass the time, just waiting until Jesus returns. We are waiting, but we're not to be just leisurely wasting our time. No, we're to be busy. We're to be working hard in the mission of making and equipping disciples all throughout the world so that ultimately Jesus would be worshipped. Right? He's the preeminent one who deserves the worship. He is God. And Paul uses these final, final words to exhort and strengthen in the evangelistic ministry of the church. He'll exhort them and urge them and strengthening them. See, we, we're called to a mission, and yet we are merely servants in the master's ministry. 
And Paul's text here points us to the main idea that we must intentionally strive towards faithfulness to Christ in our devotion and mission. We must intentionally strive towards faithfulness to Christ in our devotion and our mission. Now we see that by dividing this text up into three sections. We'll see the marks of a faithful servant, or sorry, marks of faithful servants, examples of faithful servants, and then the farewell of a faithful servant. So let's begin with the first section, verses 2 through 6, marks of faithful servants. He begins, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. This is the first mark of a faithful servant is diligent prayer. Diligent prayer. It's a command here to persist in something. Devote yourselves to something. Be in, busily engaged in something. And not just at one time. It has a, the way the grammar is used. It's an ongoing idea, so I'm always giving myself to the business of something. Well, what is that something? Prayer. Prayer. That's what we're to be constantly engaged in. Praying. Praying to our Lord. Coming to Him in adoration and praise and confession. As we'll see, thanksgiving, petition, requests. We're to always be coming to Him. Now, I find it fascinating that Paul is giving this command to be devoted to prayer, and yet it's not something that he himself never did. In fact, all the way back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul tells of himself, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul set the example. He didn't call them to do something that he wasn't willing to do. He was devoted to prayer. We should be devoted to prayer. In fact, in Acts 1.14, we see that it was the posture of the early church to be devoted to prayer. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. That's the beginning of the church. What was a priority to them? Constant prayer. It's, it's a part, supposed to be part of our everyday, normal life, just like breathing. So as you breathe in and out, your mind is always going back to the Lord. Obviously, you go about and you're doing your job, you're thinking of other things, and yet, throughout the day, you're always going back to, with a prayerful attitude, back to the Lord. And, and prayer is important. It's a primary thing for the Christian life. It, in our prayer, we express dependence upon God. We recognize our need for the Master Jesus to work in our lives, to provide what we need, though we think... We want to provide what we want, but he provides what we need to protect us in danger. Prayer is a, an expression, Lord, I'm not the sovereign one sitting on the throne. You are. And so prayer sets our hearts, it sets our minds in a right perspective of who really is the preeminent one. It's not us. So we go to the one who is. And as we constantly are devoted to that, persisting in that prayer, we're to be keeping alert in it, to be watchful in it. This is what's to be going on as we're going about our life devoted to prayer. We're watchful people, alert people, 
You might ask, okay, alert for what? Alert for what? Well, primarily, often when you see this in the text, it's drawing us to be alert, be watchful, be waiting, be looking for the return of Christ, the expected return of Christ. Remember Colossians 3, 1 through 4, our mind is set above where Christ is. And by the way, as we think about that, he slips in there when Christ appears, when he returns. We're awaiting, our mind is set on Christ, and yet we are awaiting, looking for that time when he will come back. Our minds are fixed upon Christ, and yet looking forward to when he appears. Oh, I'm looking so forward to when he appears. It'll be a great day for those who are trusting in him. And yet, as we await Christ's return, we also stand watching out for the schemes of the world, the schemes of the flesh, the schemes, ultimately, there of the devil, watching out for temptations. As one writer said, watching out for spiritual drowsiness caused by attention to the world. Spiritual drowsiness caused by attention to the world. That's what the world wants. That's what the flesh wants. It wants us to be drowsy, to drift away into being less attentive, less sharp towards the truth. See, if the devil can get us to put our guard down, or if the flesh can get us to put our guard down, we just kind of back off the gas pedal, put our guard down, stop standing firm in prayer, then it isn't long before we find ourselves in a ditch that we'd never hoped we'd be in. But instead, we must be watchful, alert. In fact, it is so necessary that Paul would mention it right alongside the armor of God. As you live in this world where the, the devil is scheming and there is a war raging beyond what we can see, not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18 that not only do we wear the armor, but he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So we stand firm in the truth. We stand firm for the gospel. We stand firm in displaying Christ-like character. And yet we are also watching out and praying at all times. Praying at all times for the Lord to help. But with that, what's, what is the attitude we're supposed to carry with us? What's he say? Keeping alert in it with an attitude of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. This is a, the proper attitude of one who truly knows the gospel, knows God's goodness of reconciliation, personally knows that. Can say, look what God has done for me, a sinner. I don't deserve it. Oh man, thank you, Lord. It's it's fascinating. The idea of thankfulness, of thanksgiving, is a running theme through Colossians, especially picking it up in Colossians 3, 15 through 17. There we, had been, we were commanded to be thankful as the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. And then we're said to sing and worship of Christ with words that come from a thankful heart. So we sing in thanksgiving. And then he says, in, hey, by the way, in everything we do, word or deed, which is pretty all-encompassing, Everything is to be done giving thanks to God. 
It is crucial that we cultivate a heart of thankfulness. And if we find ourselves not being thankful, then have we forgotten the good news? Have we forgotten what God has done for us? The preeminence of Christ in our lives ought to produce a never-ceasing thanksgiving in both attitudes and words. So that as Paul commands also in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As we remember who Christ is and what he's done for us, that thankfulness accompanies everything we do. All our prayers, even all our watching as I'm, I'm looking, I'm waiting for the return of Christ. I'm watching out for the schemes of the world. And yet, as I'm doing that, I'm, being, I'm thankful for what God has done to change me, to save me, and to still be with me, to walk with me through those times. So we ought to be a people that not only pray, not only are alert, but are also thankful. Sometimes I wonder as we, we live in a world that loves to stir up anxiety, worry, fear, depression. What would happen so over the next week when those things pop in your mind, when, when that demeanor sits down upon you? What if instead of stewing on that, feeding that, you replaced it intentionally with thanksgiving? I'm feeling anxious because I need to do fill in the blank. Lord, I know I'm anxious now. Help me. Forgive me for not trusting you. I am thankful that you said that the work you began in me, you will bring it to completion. I am thankful that you said you will never leave me nor forsake me. Man, I feel lonely now. But I am so thankful for my friend who texts me and asks me how I'm doing and says they're praying for me. See what I'm doing there? I'm taking that bad, intruding thought and I'm replacing it with intentional thanksgiving. What would happen, church, if we did that for a week? How might they, what, what if we did it for two weeks, a month? How might we change? It would be a good application for us. We're to be diligent in prayer. Now, he goes on, and you would say, okay, what else are you praying for? Well, verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well. So not only do we pray at a personal level for the Lord's help, for the Lord to work in our lives, but we are also praying for others and the gospel mission. Paul's saying pray at the same time for us as well. Don't forget us. Pray for those who are striving, working in God's harvest. It is crucial that we pray for each other. No one is above the need to be prayed for. We pray for our leaders. I tell you, the church leaders could always use prayer. Pray for our family. Pray for our friends. Pray for our missionaries, right? That the gospel, they would be bold to bring the gospel, the good news to those who are dying. We'll be praying for others. What is it that we're specifically, though, praying? He says, the first content of our prayer is that God will open up to us a door for the word. That God will open up for us a door for 
the word, that God would do that. God would make the opportunities for us. He would give us favor to share the good news. You see, ultimately, the unfolding and application of the plan of redemption and the saving of souls and in the building of the church originates in God's sovereign will, God's sovereign work. It is His mission. It is His plan. And so ultimately, we go to Him that He would give these opportunities to testify and to serve. And notice it, that he, pray, he wants you to pray that God will open up a door for us for the Word. Door to us for the Word. For the Word. So what is central in that mission? It's the Word. The Word of God. That the sending out and reception of the Word of God is what takes priority. That it is the Word of God that is powerful. Powerful to save. Powerful to transform. Powerful to comfort, powerful to produce fruit, and as he would say in chapter 1. It's helpful as you read through the book of Acts, you see the growth of the church. What, what is it that is spreading? What is the direct correlation to their growth? It is that the word of God is spreading, that the word is going out preaching of it, the teaching of it, that the Bible is central and the Bible is always to be central. The Bible is always to be central in any revival or any growth, whether that's personal or evangelistically. There's the word. Words are hard. Evangelistically. Whether it's in your personal life or some big movement you see, what is to be at the core And if it's not there, we should question. It is to be the Word of God. The Word of God. Now, why does Paul want us to pray for God to open a door? Well, he says that he may speak forth the mystery of Christ, that him and his companions would be able to faithfully proclaim The gospel, this mystery of Christ. What is this mystery? Well, it is the gospel. Ephesians 3 helps us here. It's that God is now saving both Jew and Gentile through the work of Christ and uniting them into one body. Into one body. So it's not not ethnicity, race, anything that determines where someone stands. It is based solely on your position with Christ. Paul desires to faithfully proclaim this good news, and then he inserts in there, for which I have also been imprisoned. Paul is in prison at this time. Why is he in prison? Well, he's in prison ultimately for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the spreading of the gospel. And yet he's willing to be imprisoned. He's willing to suffer for the sake of the good news going out, the church being built up. The first thing he says, though, pray. Pray for us that a door would be opened. But then, secondly, pray for us that I may make it clear. When he's speaking forth the mystery of Christ, that I may make it clear, this is verse 4, in the way I ought to speak. I may make it clear that when I 
proclaim with my mouth the words which I ought to do, I am called to do, bound to do, that it would be understandable. The, the verbal telling of the gospel is necessary. We must communicate with our mouths what the good news of Jesus is. We can't just live a certain way and hope people will guess the gospel. They won't. We have to verbally tell them. And if we aren't communicating the gospel in an understandable manner, then people are not going to know the message that rescues them from hell, that rescues them from the wrath of God. But it's not just to be clear in our evangelism, it's also crucial in the teaching ministry of the church. It is the duty of the elders to make sure that the word of God is clearly, understandably, and faithfully taught in order to have growth, in order to honor Christ. We must speak clearly. Everyone, everyone must understand the good news. Everyone must understand that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And Christ is that Savior. That we are created in the image of God, the Holy One, who is eternal, always existed. He made us in His image, and yet man fell in rebellion against Him. And because of our rebellion against a transcendent, infinitely holy God, we deserve His justice, His righteousness against us, where He have violated the King's commands. We deserve His wrath. And yet, in His kindness, out of His compassion, And goodness and love, He sent forth His Son to die for your sins on a cross to pay that penalty so that the wrath that we deserve would be satisfied. And we would have eternal life in Him when we repent and trust in Jesus. Everyone must know that. And we must remember that too. We must remind ourselves of it. So the supremacy of Christ must take hold in our lives and and lead us to be in a constant pursuit of communicating with God in prayer, both personally and for others, that the gospel would go out, that you would make our missionaries succeed in Honduras or Fiji, wherever it might be, They would succeed in being faithful to tell people about Christ and then, Lord, you would save people because God is in the business of saving people. We pray for that. So our first mark is to be diligent in prayer. The second is to be a wise witness. This is verses five and six, a wise witness. This is demonstrated through our conduct and our speech, two aspects, conduct and speech. Paul is still talking about the evangelistic mission. And he narrows down on what impacts it is the way you and I live and the way you and I talk. The verse, verse uh, 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Conduct yourselves. This is the word walk. Walk in a certain way. And when the Bible uses the word walk, it's talking about the way you live. Live in a certain way. Behave in a certain way. And again, the idea of the grammar here is it's ongoing. It's not just Sundays. 
It's not just Wednesday nights. This is a 24-7, every aspect of your life. Conduct yourselves, live with wisdom toward outsiders. Paul said in Colossians 1.10 to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk with wisdom, walk in a worthy way. Our lives are to be a symphony of worship to Jesus. We, we take the truths we learn about Jesus from his word and bring our hearts in submission to him. So that's not only my thinking and my beliefs that are transformed, but it's my lifestyle that's now transformed too. What is that lifestyle to be marked by? Well, he says here, wisdom. Wisdom. Now, he, he clarifies what direction this is toward. Wisdom towards who? Outsiders. He's talking about non-Christians, those who are not believers, those who have not repented and trusted in Christ, those who are outside the church. And so the mission of the church is for Christ to be honored in all the world through the making of disciples. That means it will be necessary for you and I to be around non-Christians, to talk to non-Christians. And Paul says that the manner in which we behave around them is crucial. It's crucial. Do so wisely. Okay, Paul, well, what does it mean to behave wisely? What does it mean to be wise? Well, as we look at scriptures, we know that wisdom is not just the accumulation of knowledge. It is to know the truth. It is to know the scripture and then live according to it. To live rightly according to it. To be governed by the truth in all our actions and all our decisions. I walk in wisdom. I live in a way that knows the word and applies how it says I should live. Or to, to put it negatively... Paul is teaching us not to live in such a way that would bring shame or reproach to the name of Christ before anyone, especially unbelievers. Why? Well, so that there would be no stumbling block that might prevent the lost from hearing the gospel and being saved. Don't even risk it. We must conduct our lives in such a way that it intrigues the lost that they would ask us why we have such a hope. Why we live the way we do. Why we talk about Jesus so much. Why we respond to difficult people with grace. Why in the world do we even go to church so often? You guys are always gone. So we could ask ourselves, what, what is our lives, what are our lives saying by our actions by our attitudes, or even by our schedules. Because what does he say next? Making the most of the opportunity. If you have the ESV, it says making the best use of time. The idea of these words here could literally say redeeming the time, buying back the time, buying it up to be used for not just anything, used for what is best and most profitable. And here in the context, he's talking about what's best and most profitable to buy your time is use it to reach the lost, to bring the gospel to the lost, to, with courage and in boldness, having prayed, to actually open your mouth to your neighbor to talk to them about Jesus. 
instead of getting upset that they ran over your flower pot for the umpteenth time. We are to always be ready to give an answer. We are to be looking for those opportunities to give an answer. Paul would tell, would charge Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word both in season and out of season. Be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready for that opportunity to bring the word of Christ. We're not to be just waiting for, you know, the chance to display wise conduct before an unbeliever or just waiting for that conversation to perfectly fall in our laps where they just say, please, just tell me about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. I just cannot wait to hear this from you. What is justification by faith? We're not just waiting for those. No, we're to be intentionally looking for those opportunities constantly on the alert. As he would say later, being se- our conversation seasoned with salt, the idea is even finding ways to turn a conversation to bring up truth. Be that guy. We're to intentionally look for every opportunity not just to tell others about the gospel, remember, he's talking about our conduct, but also to demonstrate the impact of the gospel in our lives. There ought to be an impact. It ought to be evident. I just thought of two places where that could begin. First is in our home. As a parent, always looking for opportunities, making the opportunities to talk with your kids about Christ. To talk about spiritual things, pointing them to the truth, whether you're sitting down at the dinner table and you are having a steak and you're just like, that is a delicious steak. Isn't it amazing how God made our taste buds to be able to enjoy things like that? Or times like this when the clouds decide to disappear and we can actually see the mountain and you're driving by with the kids. That thing is huge. Isn't it amazing that God can make something that big? By the way, isn't it amazing he doesn't explode and he keeps us all safe? Hey, God does that. All right, so we're using intentional, watching something on TV and something comes up, as always, right? A YouTube ad and you're like, oh, no. Using those opportunities to talk to your kids about the truth. So the home is one, another could be in your workplace. Not just working hard in a way that honors Christ and doesn't bring any reproach, but also finding ways to bring up truth in conversations. Hey, how was your weekend? Um, it was great. This church event where everyone was together and there was food, and we got to celebrate what God has been doing. I'm just so thankful. We can be thankful for what God has done. What are some things you typically are thankful for? Why are you thankful for those things? Finding ways to steer those conversations. The mark of a faithful servant is to live in a way that shows Jesus is worthy. Our lives show Jesus is worthy. And yet he doesn't just stop with the way we conduct our lives. He goes on saying, verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. So our speech is the other aspect of a wise witness. We demonstrate a wise witness to the lost world by what we say and how we say it. We're to be people whose words mirror the master. 
He was full of grace and truth. We ought to demonstrate grace and truth as well. First Peter says that he was reviled. When he was reviled, he reviled not. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. When people anger us, threaten us, revile us, speak harshly of us, then we don't return that back to them. We let the Lord take care of that. Our primary thing is, how am I being a faithful witness of what Jesus is like? Grace is to attend all of our words. And here the word grace carries the idea or the meaning of being a winning quality or attractiveness that invites a favorable reaction. So I'm speaking in a way that, re- that invites, that welcomes, that easily welcomes a kind, easy reception and response. So when we talk to people, especially about the gospel, we should be warm, we should be kind, as well as clear and joyful, right? This is good news. Joyful to tell them about the goodness of Jesus. And as we do that, it's seasoned with salt, he says. Seasoned with salt, so it is respectful and yet not wavering with the truth. We're not to be boring in our conversations, but instead winsome, choosing the right words at the right time with the right person. Why? He gives the reason why. He says, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So you know how to respond to each person. A faithful servant deeply cares about people becoming faithful servants of Jesus. So we must tell people the gospel and we must, be, we must strive to be ready to give an answer, know how we should respond. And I understand. There's some really big theology books out there. How am I supposed to know all that? Well, it takes time. It takes intentional study. Reminding yourselves of things, being in those things more and more, studying more. But I will also say this, what can help us grow in our skill of having gracious, seasoned, and wise answers for people? I would say meditation. I don't mean emptying your mind, I mean biblical meditation, where you're thinking about the truth, the Bible. Think of a Think of one of the best ways to eat meat, a slow cooker, right? If you're going to smoke a piece of meat, you let it sit for hours, seasoned well, and the more it sits and cooks slowly, the more flavorful it becomes, and you always make sure to eat the fat also along with it. The flavor just explodes with the the bite you take. What, What was it? It was time. Sitting. Well, the more we know the Word of God and the more we think deeply on it, taking the time to work over it in our minds, getting our hearts to actually apply what we read, the more seasoned then our responses will be. The better equipped we will be when people ask us a question about Christ. So let's read the Word, pray the Word, meditate on the Word, And if we have trouble, seek the help of a believer to help. What what would be the answer to that? That's okay. You can do that. So the marks of a faithful servant are prayer and wise witnessing. And our witnessing is to be Christ-honored in both the aspect of our conduct and in the aspect of our speech.
But he moves in here to everyone's favorite section in the whole book to examples of faithful servants. Everyone loves the long list of names, right? Believe it or not, there are things we can pull from this section, just nuggets of gold that we can learn from these men who have gone before us. We are, we are to be a faithful servant ourselves who is honoring the Lord both in our devotion and our mission. And we really are blessed by Scripture when it gives us examples of other servants who have gone before us, who excelled in that. Still man, still sinful man who needed Christ, but we can learn from them. To borrow a, an illustration from R. Kent Hughes, some of you might be familiar with that name. He says, uh, he's talking about each servant of Christ is like an individual instrument in God's symphony. Each has a part to play, and sometimes we might think that the part is insignificant. However, in the grand plan of the master composer Jesus, every part honors him when done faithfully. And when each part then comes together, whether we think it's significant or not, it's his plan, it's his peace. When it all comes together, it harmonizes beautifully, really to tell one big story. And that one big story is the glory of Christ and his exaltation and the redemption of his people. That Christ is the one to be exalted and he is worthy of that exaltation and he is the one doing the saving. So we get snapshots of the men who played in the great orchestra of the church. The first we see is Tychicus. Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. Tychicus was a Gentile convert, probably from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He would travel along with Paul and other men who returned eventually to Jerusalem, where Paul would then be arrested But he accompanied Paul through all of of the imprisonment journey that we read about in the last portion of Acts. And look how Paul describes Tychicus. Beloved brother, faithful servant, fellow bondservant in the Lord. Those are some wonderful titles. We would all love to have those described of us. Tychicus, we believe, personally delivered Paul's letters to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, and to Philemon. And note, it's interesting he says here that Tychicus would tell them of Paul's circumstances. He was going to encourage their hearts regarding what's happening with Paul. Encourage them. Hey, Paul's imprisoned, but we can be encouraged. Really? He's not wallowing, though, in, in pity, but he's pointing to a bigger picture. Pointing to the mission of Christ's supremacy. The mission that Christ was saving people and he was using Paul and other servants to bring that good news. So we ought not to be downcast, but instead we can pray for Paul and be encouraged that God is working. So we have Tychicus, then we have Onesimus in verse 9. You're probably familiar with Onesimus from Paul's letter to Philemon. Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. Yet, in the plan of God, he ran away right into Paul and heard the gospel and got saved later being restored to Philemon. And and Onesimus is an amazing testimony of God's amazing grace. God had transformed him from an unfaithful slave to a faithful and beloved brother in Christ. 
So much that he would serve right alongside the Apostle Paul and Tychicus. It's amazing how God changes people, most unsuspecting, saves them, changes them, and uses them mightily for his kingdom. Then we see we have Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus who is called Justice. These were three Jewish believers that are listed, just fellow workers. Paul found them encouraging. We know that some of them suffered right alongside Paul. Interesting, this is the same Mark that Paul did not want to take on another mission because Mark had abandoned, left him. And yet here we see Paul's attitude change, there's reconciliation. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he would call for Mark to come to him because he was useful in his ministry. So we have faithful servants of the Lord, of the kingdom of God, who were an encouragement. Then we have Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. These are three Gentile believers. Epaphras was the founder of the Colossian church and greatly, greatly concerned for its well-being, especially, especially with the heresies. He sought out Paul at some point to receive instruction on how to deal with the pressing issues and teachings. Thus, we now have the book of Colossians to deal with that. But Epaphras was, had a deep burden, a love for the people in Colossae and, and cared for them and wanted them to know the truth and to live rightly according to the truth. That he, what do we see there? He is an example of diligent prayer, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Luke, you're familiar with Luke probably. This is the same Luke who wrote the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. He was a physician of Paul's, an accompaniment of him. And then we find Demas. And if you know what happens with Demas, you might be surprised. Demas started out well, seems to be doing okay here. But he would later abandon Paul, pursuing the fleeting treasures of the world, as Paul would say in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas serves as a warning for us against the dangers of worldliness. And I find it interesting here that Paul doesn't really give any qualifiers of Demas. He just says, and also Demas. It's interesting. May not be much there, but Demas would stray. But at the time, he was with Paul, faithfully serving both Jew and Gentile who had been reconciled in Christ, displaying amazing character that could only be described as having been brought about by the work of Christ. And Christ had united them in one body. Now, what can we learn from this? I think there are three marks. I believe there are three marks we can pull from this list of men. Three marks that we could even actually apply in our own lives. The first is a love to love God's people. Love God's people. To del- you could say delight in God's people. These men, Tychicus, Onesimus, Epaphras, loved the brethren, cared for them, served diligently for them, and they were loved by the brethren. It reminds us of 1 John 1.3 where John writes, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There is a, a joy of fellowship when we are united in Christ. Are we 
enjoying being with each other? Do we delight being with each other? Do we delight in serving with each other, ministering to each other, and above all, worshiping Christ with each other? If we aren't finding that delight, then we need to examine our hearts and see where our thinking, where our desires are not matching up with God's demands. Where we are not truly remembering and believing what God has done to save us as just sinners. Our love for one another, our delight in one another is a testimony to the world that we belong to Jesus. So love God's people, but another one is to be servant-minded. Be servant-minded. These men were unwavering in their duties, obviously except Demas later on, but unwavering in their duties to the Lord, to serve Christ. And they demonstrated faithfulness in their servanthood to Christ and the church. These are the names of people who sacrificed much and endured much because Christ is preeminent. Because they knew they were called to be servants of the Lord. No matter what the task was, they they prioritized it. They prioritized the spread of the gospel and the building of the church. And interestingly, we don't have written for us most of what these people did. But they did things. They were working. They were serving, some publicly, some privately. See, there's a, there's a sneaky danger, a temptation to, to think that only big public ministry is what matters. I mean, we read biographies of the great men who have gone before us and think, if, if we want to make a difference for the Lord, then I've got to be the next Charles Spurgeon, which, by the way, I'm not. So we've got to be the next Charles Spurgeon or the next George Mueller. I mean, we'll do something big, and then it will matter. And while we praise God for these men and women who God used mightily in seeable ways, we're not called to be the next them. Instead, we're called to be, we're called to faithfulness to whatever ministry the Lord gives you now, here. We're to be servants of Christ, willing to do any task for the kingdom, no matter how small we might think it is. We need to watch out for the trap that says you have to do something big, whatever in the world that means. You have to do something big and noticeable to make an impact. No! The Lord, by His Spirit, is the one who equips us, each with exactly the gifting He wants us to have. He puts us exactly where He wants us to be. He's already prepared the good works for us to walk in. We are just called to be the faithful servants who only do what we ought to do because we love Christ. So where are you serving? Where? So love for God's people. Be servant-minded and partner in ministry. Partner in ministry. Minister for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. These men worked right alongside Paul in the mission to serve the Lord. We're not to be lone rangers. We're not to be lone rangers. We are to be partners in arms, fellow soldiers, fellow slaves, fellow workers, for the glory of Christ and the advancement of his ministry to each other and to the world. The work of the ministry, it's a team effort, right? That's the idea of a body. It's the whole body of Christ working together with the unique gifts God has portioned out. We need to work together. 
And so I would ask you, in light of we should be servant-minded and we should partner with one another in ministry, are you a highly active participant here at Eastridge? Or just a passive spectator? God has called you in Christ to, to be that highly active participant, that member. If you are not, then what does that say about your walk with Christ? And so I'd ask, will you partner with us here and become a member in demonstration that Eastridge is your home church where you are coming under the leadership that God has put in place here in this local body and you're ready to serve to fulfill the ministry of making disciples for the glory of Christ in obedience to Christ? Listen, the church could use more committed servants, especially those qualified and competent to teach. Are you willing to serve Christ by partnering ministry like these other men did and partnering with Paul? So Paul's greetings include faithful servants who demonstrate such an amazing devotion and commitment. And so Paul concludes it with a farewell. A farewell. And for the sake of time, to summarize, he greets the people in Colossae, tells them to read the other letter he sent forth calls for Archippus to fulfill his ministry. By the way, it's God's ministry, Archippus, that you've been given, which is a good reminder for us. It's the Lord's ministry, not our ministry. We're just to serve open-handed, to do whatever is so much that the master calls us to do. And he says, remember my imprisonment. Paul was willing to suffer. And grace be with you all. May you be blessed by the grace of God, which comes through Christ. So let's remember the marks. We could call them even applications. Pray diligently. Witness wisely. Love the people of God. Maintain a servant mindset. Partner together. Based off Paul's example there at the end, remember our brethren. And that's the end of the letter. All pointing from Colossians 1.1 to 4.18 that Christ is the preeminent, the supreme one. He deserves our worship. He is worthy of our worship. And if we truly know him, our lives will look differently. They will display in word and in deed and attitude and desire that Jesus takes first place in our lives. Let's not get swept up in the vain opinions of the world. Rather, let's stand firm in the truth that Jesus is the master of the universe who rightly deserves our submission and worship. And may Christ receive the glory as we intentionally strive towards faithfulness to him in our devotion and mission. To him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the goodness of your word that we have this letter where we, we're challenged to consider how we live, what our devotion to you looks like. It's challenged to remember that we are to come to you first and foremost always in prayer. But not just for ourselves, for each other. And so, Father, I, I thank you so much for the ministry that's going on here, but I also thank you for our missionaries who are all throughout the world that they are giving their time, their energy, their effort, their lives for the work of Christ. 
Father, may you open doors for the gospel to go forth, and may you save many people, but not just across the world, here in Kent and Renton and Maple Valley and Covington and Auburn and Seattle. May you save people and save so many people that a culture changes, one that loves Christ. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.